we're grateful for the evens working with them. Luke chapter 19. Today is Palm Sunday. It is a day that we know well from history. We'll talk about that passage a little bit today out of Luke chapter 19. It was on a Palm Sunday that little Sammy was sick and he had to stay home from church. And the rest of the family went to church and when they came home they were carrying palm branches. And uh, Sammy asked, what are the palm branches for? And his father told him, well, this is what people waved at Jesus as he rode by on the donkey. And Sammy was really disappointed and said, wouldn't you know it? The one Sunday I miss church and Jesus shows up. Uh, it's uh, never good to miss church, amen, because you don't know when he might show up. It's a day that marks people flocking together to honor the Messiah. It's also a day that we look at the first candidate this morning in our series, uh, The Friends of Jesus. I've been looking at, at different ones, and it's uh, uh, been lately kind of diving into a study of these men and women that surrounded Jesus because Jesus chose for His disciples and those that served Him an incredibly diverse group of individuals. Uh, there's a lot to learn from them. This is uh, what I want you to keep in mind uh, as we look at these different friends of Jesus, they are you and they are me. Sometimes in the Bible, uh, we look at people, we think, kind of treat them like superheroes. They weren't superheroes. They weren't spiritual giants. They're not superhuman prodigies. They were flawed. They had problems. They had doubts. They lacked faith. They are you and they are me. And so that's what I want to look at as we look at the friends of Jesus. Today, we look at Simon the Zealot. In Luke chapter 6, 15, he is called Simon the Zealot. In Matthew 10, 4, and in Mark 3, 18, he is called Simon the Canaanite. Not necessarily saying that he's coming from the land of Canaan, but it comes from the Hebrew word kwana, which means to be zealous. The word zealous is a fervent partner, uh, partisanship for a person, a cause, or an ideal. Now you might ask, why do we look at Simon the Zealot on Palm Sunday? Well, they're intricately entwined, and I think that you'll better understand what happened on Palm Sunday if you get a good understanding of who Simon the Zealot was. I promise you, uh, you're going to uh, learn uh, something today that'll connect those two very good. I think it's no better time than to look uh, than today to look at Simon the Zealot because you want to understand the dynamics of that day and where people were the day that Jesus rode in on a donkey and everybody waved and cheered and were grateful to see him at that time. Let's read about it, starting at verse number 37 of Luke chapter 19. The Bible says, When he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. I want to talk today about the friend of Jesus, uh, Simon the Zealot. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity we have today to look at an event that took many place many years ago, and yet it can take place today in our hearts if we so choose. I pray you'd help us now to honor you today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
The historian Josephus describes four basic parties among the Jews at the time of Jesus. You had the Pharisees, we're familiar with them. They were fastidious about the law. They were the religious fundamentalists of their time. And then you had another group called the Sadducees. They were much more political. They denied the supernatural and were a little more secular than the Pharisees were. A third group, uh, known in that time, but not found in your Bible actually, is the Essenes. Uh, Josephus describes them as aesthetics, and an, an aesthetic person is one who denies all their uh, desires, uh, the desires of the flesh, essentially, would almost hurt their bodies for the cause of God. And they would, uh, uh, live in the desert and study the law. The fourth group was known as the Zealots. They were extremely politically minded. The Zealots hated the Romans, and they, their, their goal was to overthrow the Roman occupation of the Jews at that time. Now, to help us understand it today, understand this isn't a like-like comparison, but it'll help us get just a little bit more of a grip on what these political groups were. The Pharisees were like present-day conservatives. They were desperate to hold on to the values of their fathers. The, uh, the uh, uh, Sadducees were more like modern liberals. They denied the resurrection of the dead. Uh, they denied uh, spiritual things. They were much more secular. The Essenes would be like the extremists of this day. Uh, they hid out in caves. They were more clicky. They are outside the fringe. If you want to get kind of a picture, maybe an extreme prepper, somebody like that today would be a little bit more like the Essenes. The fourth group was the Zealots, and they were extremely politically minded. The Zealots hated the Romans. They thought the only person that should be over the Romans, uh, over the Jews, was that God Himself. And uh, of course, the Romans were ruling at that time, and they hated this type of situation. Like the Pharisees. Pharisees, they uh, interpreted the law literally. Unlike the Pharisees, who sometimes compromised for political reasons, uh, the zealots were militant outlaws. They believed that only God had a right to rule over the Jews, so they believed that they were doing God a favor when they did things like assassinate uh, political leaders and Roman soldiers. The zealots were hoping and waiting for the Messiah who would lead them in overthrowing Rome and set up a kingdom again, freeing Israel from their oppressors. They were red-hot patriots. They were ready to die in an instant for what they believed in. Now, the zealots' leader and founder was Judas uh, the Galilean, and this happened around 6 A.D. The zealots were convinced that paying tribute to a pagan king or taxes was an act of treason against God. And this fired up the base of Israelites that were already uh, burdened by Roman taxation. We can understand the burden of taxation, can't we? Uh, imagine if we had to pay those taxes, and much more exorbitant than the ones we did, uh, and if we had to pay them to an enemy of our nation. And so Judas the Galilean seized on this, and he organized forces, and he went on a rampage uh, of murder and destruction. He's actually mentioned in Acts chapter 5 when Gamaliel was speaking to the Pharisees, and he said this in verse 37, After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. The Romans crushed this rebellion, and the zealots went underground. 
Then they formed a, a party of secret assassins called the Sakari, or as we would uh, interpret that, dagger men, because of the curved daggers that they carried. They would sneak up behind Roman officials and stab them between the ribs, piercing the heart. This is Simon the Zealot. This is his training. This is his belief system. This represents the type of person that he was. It's interesting that in Matthew and Mark, both of them, when they list the 12 disciples, and we'll learn later the importance of the ranking of the names. Uh, there's, a real, uh, there's a real important thing to notice there, how they list the names. Judas Iscariot is always mentioned last, and both in Matthew and Mark, Simon the Zealot is mentioned just before Judas Iscariot. When Jesus sent out his disciples in Mark 6, 7, it's most likely that Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot uh, were a team. They probably followed Jesus initially for the same reason, hoping that here's the Messiah that would overthrow Rome. But somewhere along the line, Simon became a genuine believer, and Judas Iscariot, as we know, never did. One of the things that drew me to this series is the fascination that I see in the diversity of the people that follow Jesus. These men accord for us an abundance of instruction that is very relevant to our situation today. Uh, think about the fact that Simon the Zealot had to work with Matthew the tax collector. Just think about that for a second. It wasn't so long ago that Simon the Zealot would have been perfectly willing to run a knife into, into Matthew's rib and killing him instantly. He would have gladly taken it because there was no greater traitor to the Israelites than an Israelite who would work for the Romans, a tax collector. But here, in the end, you find them side by side, worshiping the same God, working for the same cause, and that was to spread the gospel of Christ. It's amazing to me that Jesus would pick someone like Simon the Zealot to be an apostle. Of course, he has a man of, of fierce loyalties. He has an amazing passion. He has courage and he has zeal. And when Simon embraces Jesus as the Messiah, all that passion he had for Israel was now transferred to his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But something happens. Something will happen to test this faith of Simon the Zealot after he's following Christ for three years. Something's going to happen to test it because toward the end of Jesus' life, it starts to become very evident he's not doing anything to overthrow Rome. He's not taking any steps to do what they were hoping for. He keeps talking about dying. And we don't want to follow a Messiah who's going to die. We want to follow a Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome. And matter of fact, if you consider this question, how would the zealots as a group have responded to Jesus of Nazareth in his day. Just step back a little bit. Let's leave Simon the Zealot specifically and look at the Zealots in general and what we can read about them in history. How would they respond to a Jesus of Nazareth? Probably uh, a very mixed response would be the best guess. They would love his zeal. Man, when he went into the temple and took a whip and started throwing out the money changers and flipping tables, they'd have liked that. That would have been a great scene out of Jesus' life that the zealots would have identified with. They would have loved it when he stood against the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 22 and he uh, disputed their charges because they, of course, were against the Sadducees and agreed with the Pharisees. They would not so much like the instruction that Jesus says you need to love your enemies. <laughs> That's not so much what we as a zealot would like to hear. 
especially not considering that the enemy we have is Rome. You don't, surely you don't expect us to love Rome. They certainly would not like the parable Jesus gave in Luke 18. When you have a Pharisee standing here and a publican standing away uh, from the temple wall there, and the Pharisee is praying and, and thanking God that he is not like this dirty, disgusting publican that's standing down the road. And then the publican, you know the story, he's, he's just beating on his breast and, and praying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said that the publican is justified? And the Pharisees, they wouldn't have liked that, not at all. Because again, the publican is the traitor against Israel. They then, I guess, what would have really sealed the deal, they would hate what Jesus said in Matthew 12 uh, concerning paying taxes, when he said, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and the things to God which are God. They couldn't have handled that. But here's what I want you to consider, keeping that in mind. Here on this day, Palm Sunday, a week before Jesus dies in his life, if you were told one of the disciples is going to betray Jesus, who do you think it's going to be? I want you to think about it. You don't know yet the rest of the story now. Of course, we know the story about Judas, but you don't know that yet. Looking at the disciples now, objectively speaking, who do you think is most likely to, be, to betray Jesus? Keep that question in mind as we set the scene for what's going on this day. It was springtime, Sunday, about a, uh, the year 30 A.D., Jerusalem was crowded with pilgrims who were coming in for the Passover celebration. Visitors had filled the city to its capacity, overflowing to uh, nearby villages. News had spread among the crowds that Jesus of Nazareth would make an appearance today. He had commandeered the use of a donkey colt, and he was going to march into Jerusalem. A great multitude went forth to meet him and were prepared for him. There was... Uh, you, if you remember in Matthew, uh, in Matthew 21, 5, uh, he talks about the prophecy, Behold, thy king cometh with, uh, unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. So that was already prophesied, and that's exactly what happened. Jesus sent his disciples to get this colt, and he rode this donkey into Jerusalem that day. There was little in this scene to worry the Romans. I mean, we, uh, they were all very familiar with the emperor's triumphal entry with war horses and marching legions. This was just a bunch of excitable Jews gathered around a man in peasant's robes, uh, uh, dry, riding on a beast of burden. Nothing to worry about here. So the Romans sat idly by as thousands of people flocked to Jesus. Now, from their point of view, this whole thing was probably a joke. A king on a donkey? No way. No self-respecting king would be caught dead on a donkey. If you want to make an impact, you'll get on a war horse. You'll be surrounded by soldiers, or maybe you'll get uh, come in mounted on a chariot. But on a donkey, not a chance. It's hard not to imagine that the Romans were probably chuckling over this scene as they watched this spectacle, a pauper king riding on a borrowed donkey. His saddle was a layer of clothes, a, a mob whose only weapon was palm branches waving back and forth. He didn't look much like a king that day, but that's sort of the whole point. Because he is a king, but he's not like any earthly king. 
Jesus was sending a clear uh, message to the nation. Listen, I am your king, but I am not the king that you were expecting. He conquers not nations, but he conquers hearts and minds. And that's what he's after still today. What we have to understand that the praise that these people were lavishing on Jesus and the cheers and the shouts that were going on was not because they recognized him as their Messiah. They wanted a deliverer. They wanted someone who would lead in a revolt against Rome. Uh, they wanted uh, somebody that would come in and, and lead basically an army. But when he failed in their expectations, when he refused to lead a revolt, the crowds quickly turned on him. In just a few days, the Hosanna, Hosannas would turn into crucify him, crucify him. And just and that scene, we see that in Luke 23, 21. Those who hailed him as a hero would soon abandon him and reject him. But that's later on. This is now. As Jesus rides toward the gate of the city, crowds are growing. There's a festive air. You can uh, imagine the excitement. Uh, the Bible says that before Jesus showed up, news has traveled here that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Can you imagine the conversations being had in the street? Hey, have you heard the news? Yeah, I heard. It's sad. Lazarus died. It's so bad to hear. Oh, no, no, no. There's more. This Jesus of Nazareth came and he raised him from the dead. I was there. We were at his funeral. And he just stood there and, and uh, he had somebody remove the rock. And Lazarus had been dead for four days. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. Good thing he said Lazarus. Yeah, a whole bunch of people coming forth. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And he walks out of the grave, all wrapped up in grave uh, clothes. An amazing story. And so as the news would spread from person to person about Jesus, crowds were gathering. And when Jesus was ready to enter the city, <coughs> crowds had collected alongside the sides of the road, much like we would see for a parade. He was here. They cut palm branches and they waved them, shouting Hosanna. They laid down their clothing in front of him so that as he came, the donkey would walk on a carpeted path. This, of course, meant a lot in a time when most folks only had one or two sets of clothes. To lay aside part of their small wardrobe was a sacrifice. And others waved branches of palm trees. It was a sign of victory. The people shouted, and we like this scene. I don't know about you, but I, I look at this scene as I read it in Scripture, and I think, you know, it's about time. Jesus has so often in his ministry uh, been uh, reviled and hated and attacked by the Pharisees. And, and, uh, but here it's, it's about time that people would lift him up and glorify him. Many people follow, following Jesus cared only for what he could do for them. Many rejected any kind of commitment to Jesus. But this day, <laughs> this day was different. This is as it should be. Jesus getting praise Jesus getting glorified. Jesus saw it all. Their loving faces. And he saw the sinister faces. And he saw probably some anxious faces as well. Their shouts of praise are based on Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee. I beseech thee, O Lord. Send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh 
the name of the Lord, the theme of joy rests in God as their creator. Uh, uh, this is the day the Lord hath made. Uh, then uh, their cry for salvation, save now I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee. Then comes the part of the verse that they apply to Jesus on that first Palm Sunday. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Did you notice something? It's a little one, but there's a difference here. They changed it. Look at verse 38 very carefully here. Read it with me this time. <clears throat> this is the verse that they're quoting out of Psalm 118. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. But they changed it. They said, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Why the change? Well, they are acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. <clears throat> but again, they want a king. You have to remember that. They don't want what Jesus is offering. They are not so concerned about the salvation of their soul as they are about the salvation of their state. They want Jesus to come in and be a political leader. They don't know everything about the Messiah. They don't understand that He is the very Son of God. They don't understand He's not coming to be king over Israel. He's coming to be king over all of the earth. Most people that day who cheered Jesus had different agendas. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman authorities and establish Himself on the throne. And that's why what happened next happened. Follow me here. Crowds are trampling on top of one another when suddenly the procession stops. Now, let's just fire up our imaginations for a minute and picture the scene. It'll help us to understand what's going on next. Because if we try to visualize the scene, what's going on that day, we can see Jesus coming down the street slow, slowly on a donkey. Crowds are thronging Him. If you look over here, you see a man throwing down his cloak in front of the path where Jesus would go and uh, so the donkey could walk upon it. You see a woman over here waving a palm branch, maybe giving it to her child, and that child is waving the branch as well, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. What's Jesus doing? as you picture in your mind's eye. You can imagine him as he's sitting on that donkey and he's looking around. Maybe he is seeing people in the crowd that he knows. Maybe he sees someone he's healed and he's acknowledging them. We can picture him as he's riding on that donkey. He is smiling. He is waving. You know, you've seen the parades where politicians are sitting on top of a, of a uh, convertible. What are they doing? Waving, smiling, or the Miss Corn Husker of the month or whatever uh, in the parade, waving and smiling. And uh, we, we, that's kind of the visual we have. But I want you to see something here. And the people who were closest to Jesus would realize that it was He who stopped the parade. Now we see in our imagination His body begin to shake. His head is bowed. At first we're looking and Wondering, what exactly is he doing? Is he laughing? Hey, that would be fitting. Everybody's cheering and laughing and having a great time. But he's not laughing. Read with me on verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. He's not laughing. He's weeping. The word wept there is from a Greek word, klio. It means to weep for, to mourn. To bewail. It's the same word used in Matthew 26, 75. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus and went out and wept bitterly. Clio. Here in the middle of this victory celebration, 
the king begins to weep. Why would he weep? Well, the Bible tells us. Jesus loved this city. He loved every man, woman, and child in the city. He even loved Caiaphas and his gang of reprobates. Uh, Jesus, as he gazed down on Jerusalem, and Jerusalem means peace, but <coughs> Jerusalem did not know peace. Their history shows us at least 30 major sieges. And now here was Jesus himself, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. And they, he whom they were about to cast out and crucify. How blind they were. In verse 42, he says, this, thy day, this was their day. He was the Messiah. He was the King of Israel. Yet in the blindness of their own thinking, they rejected what he had to offer because they had a different idea in their mind what they wanted. Jesus was praised by an adoring multitude surrounded by this strong and beautiful city. Everything looked positive. Everything looked great. But he knew that within a week, he would be crucified there. He knew also that in 40 years, Jerusalem would be destroyed. He saw the money changers outside the temple. He knew that this great city was uh, completely demoralized by a, a cancer of unbelief and sin. His cry was over their blindness. Look what he says, If thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day. His cry, most of all, was the fact that they did not recognize him as their Messiah for their heart. They wanted him as their Messiah for their situation. Uh, he may not be here to set them free from Rome. But ho, oh, he can set them free from their sinful condition. He can set them free and give them a home in heaven that lasts forevermore. But they would reject him. An old friend, listen, the plea is the same today. Jesus Christ can save you. He can change you. He can set you free. Yet so many today still reject Him. You might say as you look at this story, hey, if I'd have been there, no, no, friend, you are there. You're there every day of your life. We have the opportunity uh, that they had then to accept Jesus Christ for who He was. You see, the Jews missed the whole point of the message that God gave them. The fact that they waved palm branches meant they didn't understand <coughs> because uh, this is what their forefathers did when the Maccabees overthrew the Syrian oppressors. This was a, the, 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 the palm branches indicated that they wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome. That what, uh, the, the fact that they lay garments down in front showed they didn't understand. Only a king was greeted this way, 2 Kings 9.13. And the people wanted Jesus to be their king. Most of the people did not understand what kind of king Jesus would be. And he wept over them. Let's not make the same mistake. Today, just like the city of Jerusalem, we find ourselves in the presence of Jesus, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We find ourselves in his presence, and I wonder what he finds when he looks into our faces. Does he see people filled with their own agendas? Does he see people concerned about temporal things? Does he see people who are busy doing things here? So busy they never bother to consider the things that are eternally important? Does he see us so wrapped up, don't miss this, in our own expectations that we miss out what he has for us? There's three times in the Bible that we see Jesus weep. The first was tears at Bethany over Lazarus' grave. This was tears of sympathy, John 11:35. And then we see tears in the garden. This was tears over suffering. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. Then here we see tears at Jerusalem. And these are tears over sin. 
And I wonder when he looks into your life and mine, does he weep over what he sees? Does he see people who recognize him for who he is? The Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ, is he your Savior? If he is not your personal Savior, it doesn't matter what you know about him if you don't know him. It doesn't matter. You can know him personally today. This can be your day of celebration. Now let's get back to Simon the Zealot. More than anyone, Simon would want to see a Roman deliverer, uh, a deliverer from Rome. More than anyone, he's a zealot. His whole training is that his, his life has been dedicated to overthrowing Rome. This is probably why he started following Jesus in the first place. Simon the Zealot loved Palm Sunday. Oh man, he would have been the first one. This is great. Been waiting for this moment. But in the week to follow, Jesus doesn't use this momentum to start a revolt. He keeps talking about dying. You know how frustrating that would be to someone like Simon the Zealot? I mean, we're, we want to we want to talk victory here. We want to talk uh, revolution. You're talking about dying. With that in mind, I ask the question again. As we look at the twelve today on Palm Sunday, and, and we know somebody's going to be a traitor, but we don't know who. Who would we point to? I contend that we might point to Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot is going to be more disappointed than maybe any of the disciples at the fact that Jesus is not here to overthrow Rome. He above all would pe want people to be, or want Jesus to be a political deliverer. But that was before he allowed Jesus Christ to transform his life. Simon the Zealot became Simon the Christ follower. He allowed God to repurpose his life. He who was ready to go to war with an empire was now, he took on the cause of a new kingdom, a heavenly one. Still today, people follow Jesus for selfish reasons. They follow Jesus for what they can get out of it. Today we have different Jesuses, if you want to look at, I mean, we don't really, but in, in our society, we have the Republican and Democrat Jesus. This is the one who, who, who favors whatever government policies we happen to be for. We have the therapist Jesus, helps us cope with life's problems and tells us that we are good. And don't be so hard on yourself and accept yourself for who and what you are. We have the open-minded Jesus, one who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who aren't as open-minded as you. Uh, we have the touchdown Jesus. This is the one who wants your team to win and helps them as you pray for them. We have the hippie Jesus who uh, give peace a chance. All you need is love. Imagine a world without religion. We have the guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and will help you find your center. The reality is, friend, that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. He came to redeem you, and He came to be the Lord of your life. He came one time as the Lamb of God. He will return as the Lord of all. And uh, we had better accept the fact that we, we accept Christ on His terms, not on our terms. That's the problem of Palm Sunday. They all wanted Jesus on their terms, not who He really was. We complain today about prosperity preachers. 
the, the, the false gospel that they teach. And by the way, it is a false gospel. Any preacher that tells you that you serve God and please Him, you'll never have trouble, that's, that's a lie from the devil. Some of the greatest problems in the Bible were by some of the godliest people, okay? Uh, yea, all who are godly will suffer persecution, the Bible says. But no matter, uh, no wonder they can have such huge followings because people like prosperity preaching. People like to hear uh, that only good things. And that's the itching ears the Bible talks about, <coughs> excuse me, in 2 Timothy 4, 3. And uh, people that had been hanging around Jesus Christ with self-centered motives from the beginning of His ministry. They were after what they could get from Him. Do you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? He had no problem with a following after that. They follow. In fact, uh, it's a funny story because I just noticed this recently when I read through it. But he had the feeding of the 5,000. He sends the disciples out on a boat. And then in the middle of the night, a bad storm comes up. He walks out on the water to the boat, joins them, and then goes the other side. And then the next couple of verses say that the people had watched the disciples leave without Jesus. And then they went to the other side and Jesus shows up with his disciples. And they say... Where did you come from to Jesus? That's what the Bible says. I think that's hilarious. Of course, he didn't tell them because you don't say that to people. They aren't going to believe you if you say, I walked across the lake. Uh, but when he said, fed the 5,000 after that meal, the Bible says they wanted to make him king by force. And this, this is what Jesus said in John 6, 26. You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. I got a bunch of followers, he said, who want a free meal. People still do that today. They follow Christ because maybe He can help me with my addiction. He can, by the way, but He's not a, he's not a Band-Aid for your trouble. He wants to transform your life. He doesn't want to uh, fix a certain little area that you let Him into. Uh, so people don't want to hear the real cost of following Jesus. They don't really want to know who He really is. Most people want to add Him into their life, not make Him Lord of their life. And Christ demands all. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That means there's some things you got to give up. There's some things you got to take up, and there's some things you got to keep up. And people don't like that so much as the fuzzy-wuzzy, Jesus loves you despite all your, do whatever you want to do, live how you want to live, be involved in whatever you want to be involved, and just know Jesus loves you. By the way, that's not a loving message, amen? To allow people to continue in their sin and act like God approves of them anyway, that's not loving because sin destroys. And a loving message to a lost people is that let, us de let God deliver you from your sin. See, that's what the message of was that Jesus had on Palm Sunday. I'm here to deliver your heart, not your nation. This trimmed down his crowd when he said that, any man follow after me, let him deny himself. But at some point in Simon the Zealot's life, he came to the place where he said, it's not about what I want, it's about what he wants. And when the, this crowd on Palm Sunday, uh, they turned on Jesus because of the expectations that Simon the Zealot lived for, Simon did not turn on Jesus. You may not choose to conquer Rome, he essentially said, but I choose to allow you to conquer my heart. And that's what he gave to Lord Jesus Christ. Simon the Zealot chose Christ over his own agenda. History tells us that Simon took the gospel north 
and preached it to the British Isles. Like so many of the others in the Bible, Simon kind of disappears from the biblical record. But there are historical records that talk about him, and, and uh, the, 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 the history tells us that he was killed for preaching the gospel. The man who was once willing to kill and be killed for a political agenda found a better cause for which to give his life. He gave it to the Lord Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel. And then he gave his life in the end for it. He found that working for an eternal kingdom is far better Working for a temporary one. Fighting for, and I'm all for patriotism. Amen. I believe in 100%. I'm all for uh, loving your nation. And, and I'm all for young men who strap on a, a rifle and defend their nation. That's a, those are all good things. But those are all temporal things. And this is something so much greater. And Simon the Zealot chose right. We'll look in a few weeks at Judas Iscariot who did not. Those two that worked together or possibly worked together uh, for three years. Both of them had the same leanings, but one of them chose Christ. And it saved his life and it, gave, made, it helped him make an impact that probably still goes on today. Simon the Zealot. That's the story of Simon the Zealot. What is your story, friend? What have you done in your life with the man on the donkey? What have you done with Jesus? Oh, people dabble. Lots of people dabble in Christ. But He wants to be received as your Savior and as your Lord. And that's what will really make a difference in your life. I hope today, on this Palm Sunday, you can claim, along with Simon the Zealot, Jesus Christ. He might not overthrow Rome, but I'll let Him overthrow my heart. I'll let Him in. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed.